0: Chapter 14 of Our Village, Volume 1 by Mary Russell Mitford Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart 2020 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Our Village, Volume 1 Chapter 14 A Village Bow The finest young man in our village is undoubtedly Joel Brent, half-brother to my Lizzie. They are alike, too as much alike as a grown-up person and a little child of different sexes well can be. Alike in a vigorous uprightness of form, light, firm and compact as possible. Alike in the bright, sparkling, triumphant blue eye, the short, curled upper lip, the brown, wavy hair, the white forehead and sunburnt cheeks. And above all, in the singular spirit and gaiety of their countenance and demeanour, the constant expression of life and glee, to which they owe the best and rarest part of their attractiveness. They seem, and they are, two of the happiest and merriest creatures that ever trod on the greensward. Really, to see Joel walking by the side of his team, for this enviable mortal, the pride of our village, is by calling a carter, to see him walking on a fine sunny morning by the side of his bell team, the four-horse decked with ribbons and flowers like a countess on a birthday, as consciously handsome as his driver, the long whip poised gracefully on his shoulder, his little sister in his hand, and his dog Ranger, a beautiful red-and-white spaniel, everything that belongs to Joel is beautiful, frisking about them. To see this group, and to hear the merry clatter formed by Lizzie's tongue, Joel's whistling and Ranger's delighted bark, is enough to put an amateur of pleasant sounds and happy faces in good humour for the day. It is a graceful sight in other respects, for Joel is a very picturesque person, just such a one as a painter would select for the foreground of some English landscape, where nature is shown in all her loveliness. His costume is the very perfection of rustic coquetry, of that grace which all admire and few practise, the grace of adaptation, the beauty of fitness. No one ever saw Joel in that wretched piece of deformity, a coat, or that still wretcheder apology for a coat, a dock-tailed jacket. Broadcloth, the common stale of peer and peasant, approaches him not. Neither does the poor creature, Fustian. His upper garment consists of that prettier jacket without skirts, call it for the more grace a doublet, of dark velveteen hanging open over his waistcoat, giving a Spanish or an Italian air to his whole appearance and setting off to great advantage his trim yet manly shape. To this he adds a silk handkerchief, tied very loosely round his neck, a shirt collar open so as to show his throat, as you commonly see in the portraits of artists, very loose trousers and a straw hat. Sometimes, in cold weather, he throws over all a smock-frock, and last winter brought up a fashion amongst our lads by assuming one of that light blue waterloo, such as butcher's wear. As soon as all his comrades had provided themselves with a similar piece of rustic finery, he abandoned his, and indeed generally sticks to his velveteen jacket, which by some magical influence of cleanliness and neatness always looks new. I cannot imagine how he contrives it, but dirt never hangs upon Joel. Even a fall at cricket in the summer or a tumble on the ice in the winter fails to soil him, and he is so ardent in his diversions and so little disposed to let his coxcombry interfere with his sports that both have been pretty often tried, the former especially. Ever since William Gray's secession, which took place shortly after our great match, for no cause assigned, Joel has been the leader and chief of our cricketers. Perhaps, indeed, Joel's rapid improvement might be one cause of William's withdrawal. For without attributing anything like envy or jealousy to these fine young men, we all know that two stars keep not their motion in one sphere, and so forth and if it were absolutely necessary that either our Harry Hotspur or the Prince of Wales should abdicate that fair kingdom, the cricket ground, I must say that I am content to retain our present champion. Joel is in my mind the better player, joining to William's agility and certainty of hand and eye all the ardour, force and gaiety of his own quick and lively spirit. The whole man is in the game, mind and body, and his success is such as dexterity and enthusiasm united must always command. To be sure, he is a little over eager, and that I must confess, and does occasionally run out a slow mate. But he is sure to make up for it by his own exertions. And after all, what a delightful fault zeal is! Now that we are on the subject of faults, it must be said not that Joel has his share, which is, of course but that they are exceedingly venial, little shades that become him and arise out of his brighter qualities as smoke from the flame. Thus, if he sometimes steals one of his active holidays for a revel or a cricket match, he is sure to make up the loss to his master by a double portion of labour the next day. And if now and then, at tide times, he loiters in the chimney corner of the rose rather longer than strict prudence might warrant, No one can hear his laugh and his song pouring through the open door like the very voice of jest and youthful jollity without feeling certain that it is good fellowship and not good liquor that detains him. Indeed, so much is he the delight of the country lads who frequent that well-accustomed inn, so much is his company sought after in all rustic junketings, that I am only astonished at the strength of resolution and power of resisting temptation which he displays in going thither so seldom. If our village lads be so fond of him, it is not to be doubted that our village maidens like him too. The pretty brunette, Sally Wheeler, who left a good service at B to take in needlework and come home to her grandmother, she being, to use Sally's phrase, unket for want of company, Though do note, Dame Wheeler is as deaf as a post, a cannon would not rouse her, is thought in our little world to have had an eye to Joel in this excess of dutifulness. Miss Phoebe, the lass of the rose, she also, before her late splendid marriage to the pattern maker, is said to have becurled and beflounced herself at least two tiers higher on club nights and Sundays and holidays, and whenever there was a probable chance of meeting him. The gay recruiting sergeant and all other beaux were abandoned the instant he appeared. Nay, it is even hinted that the pattern maker owes his fair bride partly to pique at Joel's indifference. Then Miss Sophia Matthews, the schoolmistress on the lea, to whom in point of dignity Miss Phoebe was nothing who wears a muff and a veil, walks mincingly and tosses her head in the air, keeps a maid, a poor little drab of ten years old, follows, as she says, a genteel profession. I think she may have twenty scholars at eightpence a week. And when she goes to dine with her brother, the collar-maker, hires a boy for a penny to carry her clogs. Miss Sophia, it is well known, hath permitted her dignity in the matter of Joel hath invited the whole family to tea, only think of Joel at a tea-party, hath spoken of him as a person above the common, a respectable young man, one who with a discreet and accomplished wife, a woman of reading and education. Miss Sophia, in the days of her father, the late collar-maker of happy memory, before she taught the young idea how to shoot, had herself drunk deeply at that well of knowledge, the circulating library of B. Not too young, Miss Sophia calls herself 28, I wonder what the register says, no brazen-faced gypsy like Sally Wheeler. Miss Sophia's cast of countenance is altogether different from Sally's dark and sparkling beauty, she being pink-eyed, red-haired, lean, pale and freckled or the Jill-flirt of Phoebe. But, to cut short a narration, which in spite of the lady's gentility began to grow rather scurrilous, one fact was certain, that Joel might, had he so chosen, have worn the crown matrimonial in Miss Sophia's territories, consisting of a freehold cottage, the little the worse for wear, a good garden, a capital orchard, and an extensive right of common, to say nothing of the fair damsel and her school or as she is accustomed to call it her seminary joel's proud bright eye glanced however carelessly over all there was little perceptible difference of feeling in the gay distant smile with which he regarded the coquettish advances of the pretty brunette sally wheeler or the respectful bow with which he retreated from the undignified condescension of miss sophia He fluttered about our village bells like a butterfly over a bed of tulips, sometimes approaching them for a moment and seeming then ready to fix, but oftener above and out of reach, a creature of a sprightlier element, too buoyant and volatile to light on an earthly flower. At last, however, the rover was caught, and our damsel Harriet had the glory of winning that indomitable heart. Now, Harriet is in all things Lucy's successor, in post and favour and beauty and lovers. In my eye, she is still prettier than Lucy. There is something so feminine and so attractive in her loveliness. She is a tall young woman, finely, though for eighteen rather fully formed, with a sweet childlike face, a fair blooming complexion, a soft innocent smile and the eye of a dove. Add to this a gentle voice, a quiet, modest manner, and a natural gentility of appearance, and no wonder that Harriet might vie with her predecessor in the number of her admirers. She inherited also a spice of her coquetry, although it was shown in so different a way that we did not immediately find it out. Lucy was a flirt-active, Harriet was a flirt-passive. Lucy talked to her beau, and Harriet only listened to hers. Lucy, when challenged on the number of her conquest, denied the thing, and blushed and laughed, and liked to be laughed at. Harriet, on a similar charge, gave no token of liking or denial, but said quietly she couldn't help it, and went on winning hearts by dozens, prodigal of smiles but chary of love, till Joel came, pleased her by manners most unlike her own, and gave to her delicate womanly beauty the only charms it wanted, sensibility and consciousness. The manner in which we discovered this new flirtation, which unlike her others was concealed with the pretty reserve and mystery that wait on true love, was sufficiently curious. We had noted Joel more frequently than common about the house. Sometimes he came for Lizzie, Sometimes to bring news of a cricket match, sometimes to ask questions about bats and balls, sometimes to see if his dog Ranger had followed my May, sometimes to bring me a nosegay. All this occasioned no suspicion. We were too glad to see Joel to think of inquiring why he came. But when the days shortened, and evening closed in dark and cold before his work was done, and cricket and flowers were over, and May and Lizzie safe in their own warm beds, and poor Joel's excuses fairly at an end, then it was that in the after-dinner pause about seven, when the clatter of plates and dishes was over, that the ornithological ear of the master of the house, a dabbler in natural history, was struck by a regular and melodious call the note as he averred of a skylark that a skylark should sing in front of our house at seven o'clock on a december evening seemed to say the least rather startling but our ornithologist happening to agree with mr white of selborne in the opinion that many more birds sing by night than is commonly supposed and becoming more and more confident of the identity of the note thought the thing possible, and not being able to discover any previous notice of the fact, had nearly inserted it as an original observation in the naturalist's calendar, when running out suddenly one moonlight night to try for a peep at the nocturnal songster, he caught our friend Joel, whose accomplishments in this line we had never dreamt of, in the act of whistling a summons to his lady-love. For some weeks our demure coquette listened to none but this bird-like wooing, partly from pride in the conquest and partly from real preference and partly, I believe, from a lurking consciousness that Joel was by no means a lover to be trifled with. Indeed, he used to threaten between jest and earnest a ducking in the goose-pond opposite to whoever should presume to approach his fair intended, and the waters being high and muddy, and he at all points a formidable rival, most of her former admirers were content to stay away. At last, however, she relapsed into her old sin of listening. A neighbouring farmer gave a ball in his barn, to which both our lovers were invited and went now harriet loves dancing and joel though arrayed in a new jacket and thin cricketing pumps would not dance he said he could not but that as harriet observes is incredible i agree with her that the gentleman was too fine he chose to stand and look on and laugh and make laugh the whole evening in the meantime his fair betrothed picked up a new partner and a new beau in the shape of a freshly arrived carpenter, a grand martial looking figure, as tall as a grenadier, who was recently engaged as foreman to our civil wheeler, and who, even if he had heard of the denunciation, was of a size and spirit to set Joel and the goose pond at defiance. David might as well have attempted to goose pond Goliath. He danced the whole evening with his pretty partner, and afterwards saw her home, all of which Joel bore with great philosophy. But the next night he came again, and Joel, approaching to give his own skylark signal, was startled at seeing another lover leaning over the wicket, and his faithless mistress standing at the half-open door, listening to the tall carpenter just as complacently as she was wont to do to himself. He passed on without speaking, turned down the little lane that leads to Dame Wheeler's cottage and in less than two minutes Harriet heard the love call sounded at Sally's gate. The effect was instantaneous. She discarded the tall carpenter at once and forever, locked and bolted the door and sat down to work or to cry in the kitchen. She did not cry long. The next night we heard again the note of the skylark, louder and more brilliant than ever, echoing across our court, and the lovers, the better friends for their little quarrel, have been as constant as turtle doves ever since. End of chapter fourteen.